That's great. All right. Romans chapter six is where we were going to, uh, are, are going to look here in just a moment. I thought I should tell you some neat things that have happened in the last uh, year since the Zoom meeting a year ago. Um, I was in a meeting back in, I don't know, I'm guessing March, uh, springtime anyway. It's first time I was at this church. Uh, I've known the uh, pastor since he was um, a junior high schooler, so a young teen. So I've known a long time. We've stayed in touch, and he booked this meeting. And it's uh, quite a quite an interesting story. He um, in his church, the church had dwindled down um, to about fifteen people. So he was very discouraged, and he started a coffee shop, and uh, just to make ends meet. And uh, what God did is he uh, he had gone to a conference and God had convicted him. Uh, he's very open and honest about it. So I'll just tell you what he, he said. Uh, he got convicted and he came home and he confessed to his wife that he was a porn addict, but he got right with God and God freed him. Uh, his wife literally did not touch him for three months, uh, but then she saw, wow, he is serious. He's, he's on course. And God began to work in her heart. And in the uh, coffee shop, uh, he's just one of these guys that's just transparent. And he would just tell a story. Well, everybody has a story. Uh, their mess may be different than his mess, but everybody's got a mess or two. <laughs> and so uh, uh, people resonated with him. And God began to move in that coffee shop. It was, it's quite amazing. Uh, there was a, uh, another small church. This is, uh, this is uh, Hills of Tennessee. Uh, and there was another small church uh, not too far away. And uh, one of the guys from that church came into the coffee shop and uh, my pastor friend told him his story and he was moved by it. He said, well, you need to come on our podcast. We have a podcast, my uh, pastor and I do. And so uh, he did. And on the podcast, he didn't plan to talk about his issue or what God had done uh, because it's, you know, it's a lot of people, but he did. He ended up telling a story and it made the other pastor of the podcast, uh, made him mad because that was his problem too. And uh, so now he had to deal with it. And what happened was these men started dealing with these sin issues and God began to move. In the initial church, by the time I got there for the meeting, it had grown from 15 to 80. And a lot of that was rescue, not necessarily down and outers, but um, people who need rescue. Everybody needs rescue. And uh, it was very apparent to me that I had stepped into a revival atmosphere. And it had been going on before I got there. There's so much more to the story, uh, but it was a very encouraging time. And uh, the final night, God breathed on us in a very special way in an after meeting. And uh, it was very, uh, very moving. I was in another meeting a couple of months later, I think in May, up in the, the state of Washington. So the uh, west coast of the United States. And the two churches there that were already being blessed of God, um, one of them had uh, seen a remarkable uh, answer to prayer. Uh, one of the men had gotten uh, COVID and he uh, had uh, gotten it seriously, as some do. And he was, uh, he was in a coma, in fact, and the doctors did not expect him to come out of it. But uh, God answered their prayer and uh, he did. And there's more to that story. But uh, in fact, he says, I'm just telling you what he says. He says, Jesus came to his room and healed him. And uh, this is a sane deacon in this church for years. Uh, I, um, I believe the Lord did. And at any rate, uh, 
the uh, churches, those two churches began to see God move in a very special way. Uh, one of the churches, uh, this is both of them in Washington. There's two churches that work together. Uh, they meet all day. So they meet Sunday morning and they don't go home until Sunday night. The, the, it's just all day. And it just, uh, it only started happening six months prior to that. The presence of God was felt. And so it was a second revival atmosphere that I walked into uh, last year. And uh, so uh, just thought I'd pass that along. God's, God's moving. There's little, little stirrings here and there, some uh, little showers. We want, uh, we want obviously more, but I praise the Lord for that. Another move of God on the coast of Maine this fall. Very, very sweet. And so uh, uh, we need to see a lot more, but uh, somebody's praying somewhere because occasionally you step in and you're aware that, wow, God's doing something here. And it's very, very special. Um, so Romans chapter six is where we're going to look right now. And, uh, obviously this is a chapter that, uh, we've touched on before, but I want to look at uh, some components that I have not really focused on. I've mentioned these before, but never really uh, dealt with them in the detail that we're going to today. So I hope you have your Bible. If you don't have one, maybe you can go grab one, <laughs> uh, so that occasionally I'm going to refer to a phrase and I think it will help you to see that phrase with your own eyes. So uh, to begin with, let's go to Romans 6 and verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So uh, fascinating verse of scripture. And I want to talk today in this hour, we're going to get to the positive side of this in the next hour. I want to talk about the fallen condition. Uh, what are the components of the fallen condition? So let's pray and ask the Lord to give us understanding. Lord, I do pray that you'd be our teacher. Spirit of God, open our eyes. Give us understanding of our human constitution. And uh, Lord, uh, as we get into the next hour, what has been redeemed, what has been changed, how this all affects us, how it all works. And I pray that you would nurture faith and thrill us with the hope of accessing uh, the victory that we just read about in Romans 6, 6. And Lord Jesus, I pray that your victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil would be manifest now. And breathe on us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a few uh, days, I will be in a meeting in St. Louis. Uh, this will be my third time there. It's a young couple I've gotten to know, and uh, they uh, uh, have this church, and uh, they're on a revival journey. If they have ever seen a couple on a, on a, a revival journey, I remember the first time there, I'd go to the pastor's house and he and his wife and uh, some of the others there in the church would be there. And uh, they would just ask uh, questions. They were hungry, hungry to know what it meant to walk in the spirit, uh, what it means to be filled with the spirit, what it means to, uh, to really know that God is leading and enabling you from the inside out. And the wife, especially, a very astute mind and uh, very uh, outgoing personality and incredibly incisive questions. I mean, uh, what I would call deep theological questions. I mean, she just had one right after the other. And uh, so from time to time, she'll write me and she'll ask another question and we'll go back and forth a bit. And it's, it's a joy. I love the hungry heart. But I remember a year or two ago, she asked me, what is the old nature. So we sometimes use that terminology, old nature, new nature. She said, what is the old nature? Now, quite frankly, it's in some ways, 
a difficult question to answer because the Bible never says old nature. Not one time. In fact, the Bible never says new nature. <laughs> Not one time. One time, the Bible says, by nature, the children of wrath. So there's the negative side. And then one other time on the positive side, uh, then uh, 2 uh, Peter 1, 4, it says the divine nature. But it does not say old nature and new nature. But what the Bible does do is spell out the components of what we could call the fallen condition. I'm using the word condition instead of nature because of uh, the confusion that sometimes enter in, enters in. The Bible spells out the components of the fallen condition and then the redeemed condition. So in this session, I want to deal with the fallen condition so that we set the stage to revel <laughs> in the truth next session on the redeemed condition. But in Romans 6.6, 6, there are three players, three components, uh, sometimes like players on a pl uh, uh, in a game, but it's actually two players and a playing field. And that's why I use the term components but it'll help us to understand the fallen condition so that in the next hour we can get to the changes that take place at salvation and then what constitutes the redeemed condition. So in this hour, let's look at the three components of the fallen condition, uh, this playing field uh, that we're talking about and these two players, three components of the fallen condition. First of all, it says in the text, knowing this, and by the way, anytime the Bible says something like that, like knowing this, it means you probably uh, don't know this and you need to. <laughs> so God wants us to know this. And then it says that our old man, so there is the first component. It says our old man is, or literally has been, we might say was, crucified with him. That's, of course, referring to Jesus now, what does it mean when it says the old man? If you look up the old man on your Bible app, uh, you'll find that it's used often in the Old Testament talking about an elderly man. <laughs> That's not what this is talking about in this text here. Uh, so there is that usage, just an elderly man. Uh, that is used one time in the New Testament that way, just what we might call an older gentleman, an elderly man. I remember uh, I have an uncle named Jim Stoutenberg. He's with the Lord. And uh, when he was in his 70s, uh, he was uh, leading the singing at West Branch, which is one of the camps uh, connected to the Bill Rice Ranch. And uh, he heard one of the uh, teenagers refer to him as an old man. <laughs> and he said, man, that really shook me. He said, then I got to thinking, well, I guess I am. <laughs> uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, when we see the word old or the phrase old man in verse six here in Romans, it's not talking about uh, an elderly male. So what is it talking about? Well, it says, knowing this, that our old man is or was or has been crucified with him. So in Galatians 2.20, when the Bible says, I am crucified with Christ, it's telling us which part of the I got crucified. It says it's the old man. But we have to ask the question, all right, who is that? Who died? What part of us got killed. <laughs> uh, crucifixion is all about death. So when it says the old man got crucified, somebody died. So what is that? Well, physical death is when the soul gets separated from the body. Uh, the best I can tell, uh, since you folks have your uh, 
camera's on and I can see you. <laughs> uh, physical death is when the soul separates from the body. That hasn't happened to the people I see on the screen. And uh, don't try to do that while we're having the session, by the way. Uh, but uh, at any rate, that means we're not talking about physical death because that hasn't happened to any of us yet. We're in this Zoom meeting. We haven't died physically. Well, then what part of us died? Well, physical death is when the soul separates from the body. That hasn't happened. So that means we're not talking about our soul or our body. The only part of us that is left is our human spirit. That's what this phrase is describing. It is the unregenerated human spirit. It's the human spirit prior to salvation. So there's our body. Inside of our body is our soul, our mind, affections, and will, our psyche, our personality. But inside our soul is our spirit. That's the old man. Or for the women in the audience, the old lady. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, that is the unregenerated human spirit that is being described here. Now, this phrase is used three times in the New Testament. It's obviously right here in our text. It's in Ephesians 4.22, and it's in Colossians 3.9. But that is the center of your being prior to salvation. It is your core. It is the real you prior to salvation. So that is what is called the old man. The second component of the fallen condition is the flesh. Now, we use this phrase from time to time. Uh, what are we talking about when we talk about our flesh? Because the flesh is not the same as the old man. And it's very important for us to understand this. So what is the flesh? Well, a couple of thoughts here. Uh, it's the turf, we might say, for the activity of sin. In other words, I used them a phrase a moment ago, the playing field for the players. So one of the players is the old man. We'll see another player here in a moment. But the turf or the playing field is the flesh. Uh, my wife and I and my son went to a hockey game the other day. It was the University of Michigan. I uh, was playing. They're actually doing quite well this uh, season. And I played hockey as a kid, uh, just in the neighborhood, street, uh, street hockey as well as ice hockey. And it was neat to actually uh, go to the rink. And of course, inside that rink is, that's the playing field, the ice uh, in a football game. Obviously, there's the playing field. There's the boundaries. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, when my son goes into his competitions in martial arts, there's a martial arts, there's a ring and uh, it's a square ring, it's a mat. And so that's where all the action happens. Okay, so the action for the activity of sin is the flesh. In other words, the turf for that action is the flesh. It's the playing field, it's the hockey rink, it's the, uh, it's the mat, it's, the, it's where the activity of sin takes place. So in Colossians 2.11, it says the body of the sins of the flesh. So sin operates and sins are committed on this playing field called the flesh. A second thought is this turf, this playing field consists of both body, physical, as well as soul, psychological. We know this because when the Bible says in Galatians 5 that the works of the flesh are manifest, some of those works of the flesh are body issues like 
fornication or adultery, but some of them are soul issues like envying and jealousy. So that lets us know that the flesh consists of both body and soul level, physical and psychological levels. That's the turf. That's the playing field for the activity of sin. Now, third thought is often in the New Testament, the term flesh is used negatively. Not always, but often. For example, in chapter 7, uh, verse 18, Paul says, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. So obviously, that's negative. There's nothing good there. Uh, over in Romans 8 and verse 12, it says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. So again, that's picturing the flesh negatively. Often that's the case, but sometimes the term flesh is simply used neutrally. We actually see this in Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. There it simply means in the mortal body. And in that, uh, in that usage, it's not intrinsically negative. It would be neutral because these same bodies that are made up of physical and psychological body and soul, uh, the turf for what we're talking about with flesh, they are also the bodies that are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So occasionally you'll see the term flesh simply used as the mortal body. Now, let's get to the real culprit. We've seen there's the old man, that's the core of our being. If you think of a concentric, uh, concentric circles, like a target, they're the outer circle is body, the next circle in is soul, and then that core circle, that's the old man, uh, that's that unregenerated human spirit. Uh, we've seen the playing field, that's the flesh. But now we come to a third component. We'll spend a lot more time on this one, and that's what I'm going to call indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. In fact, I'm going to give nine thoughts. I shouldn't have told you that. Oh, man, how are we ever going to make it through nine thoughts? But at any rate, uh, nine thoughts uh, that the New Testament gives us, at least, I'm sure there's more, uh, that help us understand this entity, this component called indwelling sin. First thought is indwelling sin is an entity within your being on the body and soul levels of your flesh. So it's an entity, it's a specific component, an entity within your being. And they're not being as in like green beans, but <laughs> your being <laughs> as in your body and your soul, your person. Okay, so indwelling sin is an entity within our being. Uh, we see this in Romans chapter 7, two times. Verse 17 says, sin that dwelleth in me. Verse 20 again says, sin that dwelleth in me. That's why I shortened the phrase to just word it as indwelling sin. Paul says, under inspiration, sin that or who dwells in me. So that's indwelling sin. Uh, that's an entity within a second thought. Indwelling sin is not the same as sins. That's important for us to realize. Indwelling sin, singular, is not the same as sins, plural. In Romans 1 through 5, 
primarily dealing with justification, we often see the word sins in the plural. So the, the actions that we call sin, uh, but they're given in the plural. Whereas when you get into Romans 6, 7, and 8, the inspired text switches from the plural to the singular and talks about this sin in the singular that dwells in us. So it's not the same as sins. Thirdly, indwelling sin is that influence within us compelling us to commit sins. So it's not the same as sins, but it's that influence inside of us that urges us, that influences us, that pushes us to commit sins. It is interesting in Romans 7, 23, and in verse 25 of Romans 7, it talks about the law of sin. That's this compelling influence inside of us to commit sins, to break God's law. Uh, Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So that law of sin, that's this entity, the sin in the singular inside of us that compels us, urges us, influences us to commit sins. So when there is temptation around you and you feel the pull toward that temptation, that's this component inside your being that the Bible calls indwelling sin, sin that dwells in us. That pull, you can feel it to get angry or to get revenge on somebody or to lust or whatever the issue is, but you feel inside of you this pull toward this trigger of temptation. That's what the old writers called the sin principle. It is this sin that dwells in us. So when the songwriter says, take away our bent to sinning, he's talking about indwelling sin. He's talking about this principle that all of us feel even in the saved condition, we're going to come to that in the next hour, but uh, this, this something inside of us that pulls us to break God's laws. I remember years ago, some friends of ours in our church in Chicago, when I was growing up and then was on staff, uh, were telling us about their little boy. It was Christmas time, and uh, they had some nice ornaments on the tree, and the mother had uh, laid down the law. (laughs) that the children could touch the ornaments, but they were not allowed to take them off the tree. Well, as soon as you say that, what's the kid going to want to (laughs) do? Break the law. (laughs) That's that indwelling sin. It's just inside all of us. The law says no. What do we want to do? Break it. And she said she came around the corner and she was observing her son. He had taken the ornament off the tree and he was quickly putting it back on the tree. And she heard him say, my sin will find me out. (laughs) But uh, at any rate, it's a classic example of how all of us uh, have this, this urge, this something, this principle, this bent inside of us, this pull that actually pulls us toward evil. Number four, indwelling sin 
is personified as someone who is served. So going back to our text, here it says, knowing this, that our old man, there's the first entity, is crucified with him, that the body of sin, okay, so there is the turf, uh, we'll say more about that here in a moment, uh, might be destroyed, that is, uh, does not mean annihilated, it means deprived of its power, and we'll talk about that later, but notice it goes on to say that, henceforth, we should not serve sin, ah, so there's sin in the singular, personified as someone who is served. So our human spirit is personified by the label old man. But now we have sin in the singular personified in the inspired text as someone who is served. So he is a master. So in dwelling sin, sometimes I call him the sin master. He's this taskmaster that's pushing us and, and urging us and influencing us to commit sins. And prior to salvation, we're chained to this guy. Uh, we'll see what happens at salvation. But the fact of the matter is, there is this master inside of us, this sin master, this indwelling sin principle that is like a boss, always telling us what to do, and it's always evil. And it's always breaking God's law. Number five. See, it's not taking that long. We're already on number five. <laughs> uh, but number five. Indwelling sin is not your flesh, but operates within your flesh. So back to the idea that the flesh is the playing field. And we have two components here. There's the old man. But now we're looking at this indwelling sin principle, this sin master, it is not your flesh, but rather operates within your flesh. Now, if you want to look at Romans 8, verse 3, this verse really makes this clear for us. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, now notice this phrase, condemned sin in the flesh condemn sin. That's who. In the flesh, that's where. So they're closely related, but they're not the same. Indwelling sin is not the same as the flesh. Very closely linked, but sin is the who, flesh is the where. So indwelling sin is not our flesh, but rather operates within our flesh. So back in Romans 6, 6, that the body of sin. So the body is the turf, it's the playing field uh, for the activity of indwelling sin. But number six here, indwelling sin is so closely linked to our flesh that sometimes the terminology flesh refers to both. Okay, so we just saw in Romans 8, 3, Jesus condemns sin, that's who, in the flesh, that's where. So there are two different components here. And yet, indwelling sin is so closely linked to our flesh that sometimes the scripture uses the term flesh to refer to both. For example, if you go to Romans 8 and verse 12, it says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, 
to live after the flesh. Now, you've heard uh, me point out before, I'm sure you've learned it through other means as well, that definite article, uh, when it's before a proper name or before an entity that's being personified, as we have here with the idea of flesh, um, when the definite article is there, it emphasizes the person. When it's not there, it emphasizes the quality of the person. Now, in verse 12, the first term flesh has the definite article. The second term does not. So, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the quality of the flesh. The flesh with the definite article is really emphasizing that link with indwelling sin. But then the quality of the flesh, that's where all of this sinful activity plays out. So, indwelling sin is not the flesh, but operates within our flesh. However, uh, indwelling sin is so closely linked to our flesh that sometimes the term flesh refers to both. That brings us to number seven. Indwelling sin is the mind of our flesh. If you go to Romans 8 and verse 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is enmity. Excuse me, verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. My eyes fell down to verse 7. Verse 6 says, carnally minded, fleshly minded is death. Now, literally, the words, if we were to translate it uh, very awkwardly, literally, it's really not that awkward. Uh, but underneath that phrase, the carnal mind is simply the mind of the flesh. Literally, the mind of the flesh. Ah, that's interesting. The mind of the flesh, the mind of the flesh. Well, the flesh is just a playing field. The mind of the flesh is this indwelling sin, the sin master, the master mind in mysteries, especially crime mysteries and crime stories, crime movies, whatever. Uh, there's always a mastermind behind all the crime. And often you don't find out who that is until well into the story. You see all these players, you see all this muck and all this crime and uh, evil. And then as the story unfolds, you find out who the kingpin is, who the mastermind is. Okay, so the mind of the flesh is this sin master. That brings us to number eight. The works of the flesh express the desires of the mind of the flesh. So this law of sin, this sin principle, this indwelling sin master, this mind of the flesh that's urging us to commit sins. Okay, so the mind of the flesh is urging us to commit the works of the flesh. That lets us know that the works of the flesh simply are expressing the desire of the mind of the flesh. Now, it's very interesting in Ephesians chapter 2 that Satan tries to deceive us through that gateway. But at any rate, the works of the flesh express the desires of the mind of the flesh or this master of the flesh. In Galatians 5, 17, it says, for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And then a few verses later in verse 19, but the works of the flesh are manifest. The definite article is there. It's the works of the mind of the flesh, the works of the sin master, the works of indwelling sin are the works of the flesh. 
And so it lists the moral sins, it lists the religious sins, the social sins, the relationship sins, all of those expressions of flesh come from the mind of the flesh. That brings us to number nine. The default or the default mode of indwelling sin, the sin master, to temptations is to compel us to yield to the temptations. So the default mode of that sin master, of indwelling sin, is always go for the temptation. Go for the trigger. He's constantly defaulting toward yield to your flesh, yield to temptation. Uh, you see in Romans 8, 6, again, for to be carnally minded or the mind of the flesh is death. He's always leading us down that road of destruction and death. He's always leading us to cave in. And so the wages of this sin master is death. It's always downward. It's always destructive. So <clears throat> we've seen that there are three components to the fallen condition. There's the old man. That's the unregenerated human spirit that uh, is separated from God. It's alienated from the life of God. God is on the outside, we might say. Uh, then there's the playing field called the flesh. That's the turf in both our body and soul levels. And then there is this entity called indwelling sin. And uh, we just walked through a lot of Bible description. I know it's detailed, but uh, it helps us to understand these are the components of the fallen condition. Now, what we're going to see in the next hour is what happens at salvation and what changes in the redeemed condition. Because often God's people view themselves as if all of this is still the same. And we're going to see it's not all the same. There are some radical changes that take place, and we need to understand that. And so in the next hour, we're going to look at a before-after of uh, the fallen condition and the redeemed condition. Uh, but at this stage, I wanted to just uh, set the stage uh, by having us look at these three components. So uh, let's go to Q. Uh, maybe you have some questions in this regard. So, uh, Pastor, if you want to uh, unmute everybody, we can go to the Q&A, and uh, then that'll set the stage for 